let's study the Word of God together. Oh, I love His Word. Don't you love the Word of God? Aren't you glad? Oh, come on, guys. You've got to give me more than that on a March morning. I'm going to say it again. Don't you love the Word of God? The Word of God is awesome. It's wonderful. If you're discouraged and you're feeling down and you don't know what to make of anything, open up your Bible. And I guarantee you, by the time you're done studying, you won't feel that way anymore. God's Word is living and active. It's strong. It's powerful than a two-edged sword. And it teaches us and instructs us and encourages us. And it is so wonderful. Now, we're back in Philippians 2. You remember that last week, uh, Paul talked extensively about Jesus Christ. He talked about His humility and His selflessness and His sacrifice And we've seen that again personified this morning at the table of the Lord. And then he calls us in a very pivotal part of the passage to have this same attitude that was in Christ. Now I gave you a little experiment, a little challenge last week to try this for an hour or to try this for a day. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you did that, but it was not easy if you tried it. Doesn't mean we're exempt from it. Doesn't mean just because it's hard we don't have to do it. But it is not easy to do nothing out of selfishness. To be completely selfless, completely sacrificial, completely humble, to look on the interests of others uh, more than the interests of ourselves. Because even as we're doing that sometimes, even as we're sacrificing, there's an attitude that develops in us kind of like, well, why doesn't anybody appreciate it more? Or why am I not being noticed? And we start to grumble. Well, now I'm sacrificing. Somebody should sacrifice for me. I don't know if you guys have those thoughts, but I do. Well, yeah, okay, I'm being humble and I'm trying my best and I'm, I'm going to serve others and look out for the interests of others. But, but when do I get my payback? There is no payback. You don't do it with a motive. Jesus didn't do it with a motive. He couldn't force us to be saved. He offered us salvation knowing that billions would reject him. Can you imagine such a thing? Going to the cross, bearing our sins, knowing billions and billions would reject him. So it's not easy, but it is critical that we do it. Not only to be conformed to Christ, but also because our ability to be effective in ministry and in reaching people for Christ has to be driven by this. There's no way our ministry would be effective. There's no way we'll have a heart for others let alone step out of our comfort zone and talk to people about Christ or confront people with truth or be able to share the gospel with with any degree of integrity if we're not humble and selfless. See, part of the reason I believe that the church and Christians have become less effective and less passionate about personal evangelism is because as the culture has become more overtly selfish, the church then has become more man-centered than Christ-centered instead of doing it the other way around. The reaction to the pride of culture and the sin of culture is not to become more like culture, it's to become less like culture so there's a marked difference, to focus more on Christ. So this is a really important section of Scripture for us today, and its placement in the passage is no accident. Paul points first, in the first part of chapter 2, you can look back at that, he points first to the example of Christ, and then he gives us our commission. Because God never calls us to something that Christ didn't exemplify first. 
Now, this is one of the great reasons, and there are many, but one of the great values of why Christ came here is he showed us how to do it. He showed us how to do it without sin and without equivocation. Remember, he was fully human. And the Bible says that he was in all points tempted, like we are, yet without sin. In other words, Christ knows exactly what I'm going through. He knows exactly what you're going through. There's nothing he can't relate to. There's nothing he hasn't experienced. There's nothing he doesn't know about our lives that, that we have been through that he hasn't. He knows rejection. He knows pain. He knows heartache. He knows disappointment. He knows frustration. He knows righteous indignation. He knows all of it. So anything that you and I go through in our lives, he has experienced and he has lived, and yet he has done it without sin. So we have his example, first part of chapter 2, and now Paul says, and he's not bragging here, Paul was a, a strong believer. He was someone you could look up to and see as a model. And Paul says, Philippians, you have my example too. But I'm not with you anymore. And I want to encourage you, and by extension encourage us, because all Scripture is profitable for us. So just because he wrote this letter to Philippi uh, over 1,900 years ago doesn't mean it's ancient and non-applicable and non-relevant. It's every bit as relevant then as it is now. So he says, I'm writing to you and I want you to stay strong and to remain faithful. And all throughout the letter, he mixes in theology with practical and specific ways to exalt Christ. We saw it at the start of chapter 2. We'll see it here again in verses 12 to 18. It'll continue into chapter 3 and especially into chapter 4. Because Paul knows how easily we can slip back spiritually. He knows how easily discouragement comes in and heartache comes in and, and sin attacks us. And if we don't aggressively, and I would even say jealously, guard our hearts to be faithful to the Lord, it will be easy to slip. So he's saying, Philippians, of all the churches that I look at, you're the one that's exemplary. You're the one that's served the Lord. You've been faithful to the Lord. You've been faithful to me. You've stood strong. You've been humble. You've done everything as right as you can. But let me tell you, don't get cocky and don't slip. Keep pressing forward. He is the illustration of a runner who runs the race, not beating the air, not flailing around, but running efficiently and smoothly, but constantly looking toward the prize, constantly moving forward. And he's saying, look, you've done well, but there's more to be done. Continue to press forward and continue to fulfill the spiritual calling in our lives. Okay? So that's the intro. Look at verses 12 to 18. These seven verses are going to divide up into three kind of basic sections. Each theme plays off the other, so let me just kind of give you an overarching view, and then we'll dive into the text. Verses 12 and 13 are an exhortation to work out our salvation, and we'll define that term more fully in a moment, but, but that's the first section, verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation. Verses 14 and 15, uh, excuse me, 15 and 16, he gives an urgent appeal to live above reproach, we'll explain that, in order to reach a spiritually lost world. In other words, we have a role in how we live in terms of how effective we are reaching people for Christ. And then the last two verses, verses 17 and 18, are a reminder of the extent to which we're called to serve Christ. And we'll touch on that at the end of our study, okay? Look at verse 12, let's start reading. 
So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, Paul starts by personally appealing to the Philippians to keep going even though he's not there. And at this point, Paul is in Rome and he's in jail. He's old. His body is not working anymore. He can't see well. He knows that his ministry, his active ministry, his work out in the field, that's all coming to an end. And he's pretty sure that he's not going back. He's pretty sure he's not going to get out. He's not going to tour the churches in Asia Minor that he set up. He's not going to have time to personally teach and talk and pray and eat and minister with those believers. He's not going to get to watch them personally mature in their faith. So he says, you got to keep going without me. Mature and serve in my absence. And that had to be really bittersweet for Paul. I've I've tried to, in my mind over the years, relate to what he's writing when he's away from his congregations. And he must have been so proud that this church had been faithful when there was so much mess in all the other churches. And he looks back and he's sitting in his cell and he's writing on the parchment and he's, and he's sad because he's never going to see these precious believers that he's loved so much and that have ministered to him and encouraged him. But he says, I'm so proud of you. Now you've got to press on. Now, Philippi, I trust you. you. You are the church that I can trust out of all the others. What a statement that is to make about a church. I pray that Harbor Rock Tabernacle is always a church that can be trusted. Where the word of God is taught and studied, even years after I'm long gone, if this church lasts uh, until Christ comes, and Christ, we pray, comes soon, but however long it lasts until the Lord returns, that we would always be faithful to the Word of God. That we would always be a church of prayer. That we would always be people who are faithful and true and holy. That we'd always have a heart for people. That we'd want to share the gospel. That we'd have a consistency in our faith and obedience. So other believers could look at us and say, you know what, you can trust Harbor Rock. You can trust that church. You can trust that they're going to be faithful to the Lord. Just like Paul writes to Philippi and says, you can trust, I can trust you, Philippi. I know you're going to be faithful, but listen, press on, keep moving forward. And Paul uses the phrase, look at it. It's in verse, uh, was it 12 or 13? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I love that phrase. It's such a beautiful phrase. The first part where he says, work out your salvation. Literally, I wanted to really get the words right here. It means to accomplish and bring something to a result. So, church, accomplish and bring to a result 
what God has called you to do. And the second part is even more descriptive. He says, with fear and trembling. The word fear there literally means terror. And the word trembling refers to, and I'm going to just read you the actual definition, the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability completely to meet all the requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. Now let me put this into uh, just everyday terms. In other words, Paul is saying, fulfill this great salvation that has changed your life by serving the Lord in a way that brings results that glorify Him and lead people to Him. Church, believer, Paul Rhodes, fulfill this great salvation that we just celebrated at the table, that we just sang about in all these songs. Fulfill that salvation in such a way that glorifies God every minute and leads people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then there's the second part, and this is the reality. This is what the Spirit writes. Be terrified and nervous about not doing it. Fulfill your salvation. Fulfill the work that God's given you. Be honorable to the salvation that God's provided. And the second part is, be terrified and nervous about not doing it, but let it spur you on to fulfill the calling in every way possible. Now that kind of changes it, doesn't it? That kind of moves past, well, I'm going to church and I'm doing my best and I'm reading my Bible a couple times a week and occasionally I'll pray and I'm trying to trust and I'm serving a little bit. That's all wonderful, but that's not what Christ died for us to stay as. Christ died and rose again so we would be like Him. He's given us everything we need to be like Him. He's equipped us with His Spirit who will show us how to be like Him. He's transformed our nature so we will become like Him. And now He says, move forward. Don't stay stagnant. Don't stay in one place. Don't just exist and kind of do your best. He says, no, the calling now is to fulfill this great salvation so Christ is glorified and people are drawn to Christ. And we should be terrified if we don't do that. Because this is a great calling. And it's a tremendous opportunity. And it's an urgent responsibility to be on the front line of living for Christ. It is a constant progressive work that we need to take to its completion. Now you say, all right, Paul, that's a lot to lay on me on a beautiful March morning. But here's the powerful part of the passage. Look back at verse 13. Paul says, we aren't doing this on our own. We aren't doing this just by being stirred or just by feeling kind of guilty or, or by manufacturing some kind of courage that we're not sure we have, but we're going to try our best. Now look at verse 13. He says, it is God who is at work in us. In other words, we have, and I want to hear an amen after the sentence, we have all the power of heaven behind us. All the power of heaven is given to us. How do I know that? Because we've been given the Spirit of God indwelling us. We're not lacking. We're not insufficient. We are in our humanity but we're not humans anymore. We're aliens. We're children of God who are filled by His Spirit. So all the power of heaven is given to us and the Holy Spirit is actively working in our lives 
to strengthen us and give us power and confidence and courage and to give us the words and the boldness and the opportunities to work out our salvation. What an amazing spiritual resource the Lord's given to us. There is no way that we can overvalue what the Spirit does in our lives. And any feelings of inadequacy or, or weakness, any thought of hesitation or, or, or doubt or, or fear, any question about how to proceed and, and when's the opportunity and what words am I going to say, any of that, it's all overcome by the Spirit's work. Can you see why it's so important to be yielded to Him? And why prayer is so essential that we draw close to Him? And why the Word is so valuable to teach us the mind of the Lord? God has given us everything. Listen to that word. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, which means that the Holy Spirit is everything in our lives. He is at work in you to do His will and to work for His good pleasure. What does that mean? It means literally that He is working to keep us determined to live for Christ and to give us the power to be effective in living for Christ. In other words, He works with our mind and our heart to keep us spurred up and determined and moving forward, and then He gives us the ability to actually carry it out. Now, he's working to do that, but there's also responsibility in us. Look back at the text, because we are called to take careful responsibility to do this well. And it's not just for our maturation. It's not just so we'll be stronger. It also has an outward benefit. So look at where it all begins. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, that seemed to me, as I kept reading it, studying it, reading it, and I've studied Philippians many times, so it's familiar, but I kept coming back to that. Like, why is that the first thing that he says? Why no grumbling or disputing? But when we compare it to what we read in verses 2 to 4, it matches up well. Because not only is it essential that we're humble and selfless, but our calling, listen now, can't be seen as a chore or something that's unreasonable. Well, God, you saved me, and I get that. I owe you my life, but now you're calling me to do something that's, that's beyond my ability, beyond my comfort. I don't know if I, if I have the, the strength to do it. I don't know how to do it, and, and, and this seems almost unreasonable. No, it's not unreasonable at all. If someone took a bullet for you during a bank robbery, or, or someone stepped in front of a car that was about to hit you, or, or someone paid off a, a $60 million debt that, that you had that was going to put you in jail, would it seem like a chore to thank them and serve them? If I'm standing there and I'm in the middle of the street and a car's about to hit me and somebody comes along and pushes me out of the way and, and gets hit and dies from me, am I going to say, well, you know, they should have done that. I was about to get hit. Or if the person lives and they're in the hospital for months and months and months, am I going to visit them once and say, hey, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you saving my life. And, and then never do anything for them again? Of course not. Jesus exponentially, by, by a measure that we can't even understand, Jesus exponentially 
stepped in front of our sin and our penalty and paid the price and forgave the debt. And now we're going to come back and tell him, Lord, it's too hard. Lord, it's a chore. Lord, it's a responsibility. Lord, it's unreasonable that you would expect this of me. That's why he says, as often as you eat or drink, remember what I've done. Remember the sacrifice that I made. That's not just a nice phrase that we use during communion once a month. It's a lifestyle of gratitude and complete devotion to him. So read the verse again now in that context. Do nothing with grumbling or complaining or disputing. Even if it infringes on your desire and your will and your comfort. This is not the time for us to be complaining that the calling is too high. Then look at the next phrase. We're called to prove that we're blameless and innocent. Not just by the declaration of God which justified us and declared us righteous, but by a purposeful, intentional, joyful choice to be holy and pure in our hearts and minds. In other words, there's a burden of proof on us as children of God to verify how much we love the Lord. And that may seem heavy and it may seem cumbersome, but it shows how great our salvation is and how great our calling is. Hebrews says, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And as I thought about that verse this week, I, I, I instantly got a picture that I need to share with you. Imagine that Christ is hanging on the cross and he's gushing blood and he's being mocked and he's being spit on. He's in complete physical agony. He's bearing the weight of all of mankind's sins. He's about to be separated from the Father. And he knows in that moment as he's hanging there bleeding in complete agony in every sense of the world, he knows that someday his child, Paul Rhodes, will neglect his salvation. Would you want to go through with it if you were him? He knew in advance what was going to happen. He knew in advance that I would neglect his salvation and that you would neglect his salvation. And he still went to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, suffering and despising the shame that was put on him. Knowing he's delivered us, knowing he's purchased us from the eternal penalty of sin, knowing he's washed us clean, knowing our sins are gone, knowing that our nature is going to be transformed and the Holy Spirit is going to indwell us. How can we neglect so great a salvation? No, we have to go just the other way. Look at what the text says. He says, now you are to be lights in a perverse generation. There is no time to justify any more sin. There's no time to participate in any more sin. There's no time for our witness to be ineffective because we're busy with other things and we're worldly and we're hesitant to talk about Christ. The last thing we should ever want to do is grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So he says, don't neglect the salvation. Think about what Christ has done. And we're going to press forward, not because of guilt. Listen, uh, obedience never is good when it's out of guilt. 
we function out of love for Christ and we function out of gratitude to God and we function out of a passion for our calling and we function out of a heart for people. If our ministry here at Harbor Rock, if our lives as individual believers can be driven by those things, not by guilt, well, pastor told me to do this, so now I've got to do it, but I'm not really excited about it. No, come on, that will never work. Gratitude to the Lord for His love and His mercy. Passion for this calling. Strength in the Spirit. Driven by a heart for others. Desiring to see people pulled literally out of the fire. They've got one foot in the fire and it is our job to rescue them. Oh, when we feel that love for the Lord and that passion for His calling, it will change how we live. And look at what He tells us that our job is. The primary practical motivation for being blameless and innocent is to be a spiritual light in the middle of a perverse generation. Now to do this, he says that we have to live above reproach. It's the exact same word in the Greek as the word blameless. So what does it mean? Literally, the word means to be morally without fault and to be free from guile. The practical definition, and I love this, is don't be mixed in. Don't be mixed in with the world. Don't be mixed in with sin. Don't get caught up in all of that together. Now, the pressure of the culture is just the opposite of that. The pressure of the culture is, to, is that if Christians don't conform and Christians don't get their act together, and we insist on holding on to these convictions that are archaic, and they're from the Bible, and how can we trust that? And if you Christians don't get in line with what the world believes, nobody will listen to you. How many have heard that argument made? Uh, you Christians, I'll tell you, you're just so backwards. If you don't get your act together and start lining up with the rest of the world, you're, you're going to be left behind. Is it any wonder that the God of the world is trying to make that case to dissuade as many Christians as possible from holding biblical convictions? And then there's a second problem that we've talked about many times before. The, the church, in many ways, has bitten that apple of compromise and we've convinced ourselves that if we look like culture, that we'll attract it. That we better relax our convictions and we better not take the Bible quite so seriously if we're going to get people interested in God. Now, there is one significant and serious problem with that line of thinking. It completely contradicts Scripture. So the strategy is wrong. And if you look at verse 15, it proves that. It doesn't matter what the latest huge church is doing or what the church growth experts tell us. We have to guard against jealousy. And trust me, pastors are the worst at this. Pastors are the worst at being jealous and looking at other churches and saying, well, why don't we grow as fast as them? And why don't we have that? Why don't we have that? Why don't we have that? And how is that guy succeeding? He's not even teaching the Bible. And he's got tens of that. Listen, pastors are neurotic. So we're the worst at being jealous and looking elsewhere and saying, well, 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 what should we do then to change so that we can be like them? 
Now, there are a lot of churches, let's not get discouraged, there are a lot of churches that are doing it right and standing for the Lord and having ministries with integrity. But there are many others that have given in, and they draw hundreds and thousands of people. But it's a false economy if it's not aligned with the Word of God. The Word of God is very clear here. And I believe and hope with all my heart that the tide is starting to turn back to where we need to be, but a lot of damage has been done. And once compromise takes hold, it's very hard to ever go back to strong conviction or to have credibility that you hold strong conviction. So the church has been damaged. Evangelical Christianity, especially in America, has been damaged. Now, let's not lose sight of the primary reason why he's called us to do this. Why does God call us to live above reproach in the middle of a corrupt and, and, and perverse generation? Well, he says you're supposed to be pure and without guile, not mixed in in the world for these two reasons. Look at verse 15. He says, one, because we live in a crooked and perverse generation, and two, because we're to be lights in the world. In other words, there's an inward purpose for being holy so that we would be like Christ, so that we would fulfill the calling and the transformation that Christ has secured for us. We have a calling to be holy, be holy as I am holy. So that's reason one, inwardly. Then there's an outward benefit from being holy. It will benefit people who don't know Christ by drawing them toward Christ. And think about the illustration the Spirit gives us here. It's very simple. When you're walking in darkness, in pitch darkness, what does the presence of light do? It brings clarity to your mind. It brings comfort to your heart. It takes away fear. It shows direction. It, it leads you to safety. I don't know if you've ever had the experience I had one time where I was in a hotel and I had all the lights off the, the curtains were very effective at, at blocking out the light. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I'm trying to find where the bathroom is, and, and I have no clue where I am because my brain is thinking my house. You ever had that experience? Come on, show me hands. How many have had that experience? And, and what are you doing? You're like bumping into walls. You're like, wait a second, the door's supposed to be here. And you're up against the thermostat, and it's crushing your nose. And you're like, I'll go this way. It's got, oh, and you, Right? Why? Because you're in darkness. There's no light. There's nothing to show the way. And you start to get panicked. There's no feeling of comfort. There's no feeling of strength. There's no feeling of assurance in any way because you're in the dark. But if you find a light switch, what happens? Oh, clarity. I'm in a hotel. I forgot. There's the door. Instantly, instantly, once light is there, it shows the way. Look at the text. We're in the middle of a dark generation, and we have the light. We have the light. And when someone's in spiritual darkness, it's exponentially worse than a dark hotel room. The gospel is the light and we, as servants of the gospel, as people who have changed, been changed by the gospel, now can tell people, Jesus Christ can transfer you from darkness to light. Jesus Christ can bring clarity and conviction 
and strength and comfort and direction and remove all fear. Jesus Christ can do that. We now are the ones with the light and Jesus looks as he's standing in Galilee up on the hill and says, be a city set on a hill that is shining bright. Don't cover the light. Let the light shine. So as believers and as a church, we have a powerful responsibility and we have a powerful resource of the gospel and the spirit. And if we utilize that, and at the same time we're utilizing it, we're living above reproach. Listen, people will not be turned off. They will be drawn toward Christ. Let us not believe the lie of the enemy that if we don't conform, we're not going to reach people. If we conform, we won't reach anybody. If we stand as agents of the light and we live above reproach and we're holy and respectable and truthful, people will be drawn to Christ. How do I know that? It's because it's right here in Philippians 2. Now you say, well, why do people need the light that Jesus came to offer? Well, the reason's right here in the text. You can always come back to the text. So what does the text say? It says the world is crooked and perverse. That's not our judgment. That's not Christians. Oh, you Christians are being so judgmental. I'm sorry, that's what my Bible says. So if you want to call something judgmental, call the Bible judgmental. You know why the Bible's judgmental? Because we're sinners. It says the generation is crooked and perverse. Now this is 1900 years ago. It's far worse now. And look at these two words because they're very descriptive. They indicate that the world is messed up and distorted and perverted. It certainly is not right this morning. But notice how in some of the changes that are being made to what's always been viewed as right in our culture, let alone what the Bible teaches, that now these distortions are being viewed as progressive and as enlightened rather than as corruptions. Now we get nervous about saying that out loud because we might be viewed as intolerant. And some of you may even be a little uncomfortable right now with what I'm saying, because you say, well, it's kind of narrow, Paul, and boy, we're sounding really fundamentalists here. Listen, the enemy wants us to believe that the world's not crooked and perverse. And don't think it's going to stop. I heard a story this week as I was driving down Taylor Avenue about the first three-person civil union in the Netherlands. Now, marriage is not just between man and a woman. Marriage is not just between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Now there are three people. And a ruling in Virginia this week that struck down the Commonwealth's traditional marriage amendment in their constitution, now, according to someone that I read this week, says now the door is open for four people, five people, six people in a civil union. So we don't, listen, it's not getting better. Facebook now has what? 52 different definitions of sexuality? This is not going to get better. We're not going to go back. So what do we do? Things are crooked. Look at the last part and we'll pray. He says, you and I can be light in the darkness. Verse 16 tells us how, and I want you to look very closely at this one answer. 
How can we be lights in darkness? He says, by holding fast the word of life. Say it with me. Holding fast the word of life. In other words, there is one way that we can be lights, and that's by being people of the word. By living by the word, by trusting in the truth of the word, and by sharing the word. How do we know that's right? Well, John 1 says Jesus is the word. So if we're saved by Christ, and we're indwelt by the spirit of Christ, and we're disciples and witnesses of Christ, and we're supposed to exalt Christ in how we live, and if to me to live is Christ, then I have to live by the word of Christ. You cannot separate the Word of God from being like Christ because it's Him. The Word is Him. This is the living embodiment of Christ. He is the Word. It's not just He wrote it or some guys wrote it in dungeons and cells and they kind of made it. No, this is the Word. This is Christ. So when you hold this Bible in your hands, you hold Christ. Now, Be lights in the darkness. Look back at one more time. Be lights in the darkness by holding fast the word of life. In other words, people will see the light in us and they'll be drawn out of the darkness and to the light. And Paul says doing this is not in vain. It's the reason we run the race. It's a tremendous calling that God has given us. It's an assignment that permanently changes lives. I look at some of the assignments that my kids get in school and some of these group projects where I have to drive down to Peoria to meet with the other classmates and film some video. And I'm like, well, that's good. And I'm glad they're getting time with their classmates. But that this project makes no sense. I'm 50 years old. I know what projects I'm going to use later in life. And that's not one of them. That assignment, I hate to, I'm not going to tell you kids because I don't want you to stop working, but that assignment has zero relevance for your life. Some of the assignments we're given in life, some of you at work, you go, I can't believe I'm still working on this. This is just ridiculous. We're going nowhere. Listen, there are assignments in life that don't make any sense and they're a waste of time and energy. This assignment changes lives forever. This assignment that God has given us has the power to transform people's eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but I can get excited about that. We may get a little nervous, and we may know it'll take some sacrifice, and we're kind of drawn to it, but but this just can't be a passing interest that we give to once in a while. It has to be our lives. And Paul tells us why in verse 17. Read it again. He says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and serve your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. In other words, Paul uses a powerful illustration from the Old Testament to say this is the extent to which we give our lives to the Lord. The drink offering was established in Genesis 35. It's established in the law in Leviticus 24. Every time there was a sacrifice, they were to pour out an extra offering of wine as the lamb was being sacrificed. It was a picture of extra measure of giving to God, and it's a beautiful, I'm so glad we had communion this morning with this text. It is a picture of that. That Christ's blood was poured out 
as a sacrifice, as an extra sacrifice to exonerate us from sin forever. That's why Jesus, as he's sitting at the Passover table, says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. Jesus was the drink offering. That's why we don't celebrate sacrifices or drink offerings anymore. Because Jesus says, I'm the final lamb. I'm the drink offering. My blood is being poured out. Now Paul says, because of Christ, now my life is a drink offering. Isn't that beautiful? My life, your life, is now a drink offering. And he says in Romans 12, we are a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. Jesus is the literal sacrifice. Jesus is the literal drink offering. Now he says, give yourselves. It's not a burden. It's not a chore. It's not cumbersome. It's not unreasonable. It has the ability to change lives. Paul says, Philippians, Christians in Racine this morning, keep moving forward. Keep pressing on. Look to Jesus, who's the drink offering, who's the sacrifice. Now, you and me, we're living sacrifices. We're pouring our lives out as drink offerings all the time because we are going to be the ones who will go into a crooked and perverse generation and be light. And as light, as people who are living above reproach, people will come and people will be drawn to Christ and people will get saved, and we will celebrate that salvation, and we will praise the Lord, and the next time we'll have more people to celebrate the table, and then we'll continue to live above reproach and be a drink offering, and then there'll be more people at the table, and we'll continue to praise God for how he works. This is our calling. This is not, this is not optional. So the question is, are you and I prepared to be a drink offering? Are you and I prepared? Are we ready? Are we willing to resist the perversity of our culture for him and to be a light in darkness? This is an amazing, wonderful, joyful calling. May God help us to live for him every day of our lives.